Good evening, Happy New Year. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney, joined this time by Rowan Kaiser. Hello. Len Hafer. Hello. And John Balding. You're kidding me. <laughs> John? John. John, did you mute? Are you muted? Oh my damn god, it. he's asleep. <laughs> okay, I heard damn it. Okay, I fixed it. <laughs> that was good. That's funny. I love 2021. It's a fucking great year already. Yeah, we're we're continuing the theme of uh, yeah, where, where is John? You want me to pick up from my respond? <laughs> yeah, let's let's you know I can't, I know. I can't tell you how of... to use your microphone. You're gonna have to figure it out on your own. And you might ask yourself, <laughs> how did I get here? <laughs> well, I um I guess the rest of this intro is pretty mooted. I was gonna talk about how it was a new year, new start, putting 2020 behind us, <laughs> and yet we're right back to the same stuff. Uh nevertheless, we are going to look back at the year that was. Uh, talk about the year in strategy games and some of the major trends running throughout it. And I think one of the places to start is that while tactics games have been kind of a staple ever since really XCOM helped uh, make that sort of dust off that genre. And then we saw it become uh, very trendy with some roguelike mechanics. But I think one of the major twists we saw coming this year is that suddenly we're seeing a lot more uh, tactics games about prediction and messing around with timelines. And I want to talk through the, the shift and what kind of the, the salient games are in, in this trend. So I'll throw it to the room here. Where do we, where do we think was the, where do we think this started uh, as, as a major trend in 2020? Well, there are, there are a couple a couple trends that kind of uh, came through in two different from two different directions. I think that uh, this has been like bubbling up in RPGs, specifically like JRPGs or JRPG style games, where you know what's coming and you are have the tools to try to either like avoid damage to your characters or predict what enemies are going to do and stop them from that or whatever. Uh, all these things like. This has been going on for like decades. Final Fantasy X started it a little bit, but uh, it's really been increasing, I think, with the Zeboid games. Uh, the Cosmic Star Heroine uh, they did a couple years ago was very intricate in terms of like knowing what's happening and how to predict how to make your characters uh, uh, do the most damage they possibly can and so on. Um, and from the other side, uh, the big game is Into the Breach. Uh, on the sort of tactical strategic side, you had this uh, surprisingly popular and extremely critically acclaimed release that was built on knowing what enemies are going to be doing and figuring out the best way to uh, survive and bypass and so on. And I think we're seeing that merge together a bunch this year with uh, like uh, Star Renegades and uh, Phantom Brigade, which is came out in early access towards the end of the year. Yeah, I think you're completely right. Uh, if you look at it from a game development perspective and from an industry trend perspective, we're sitting at two years. The beginning of, of 2020 is two years from the release of Into the Breach, right? So that's enough time for most indie studios to say, I really like this idea. Let's spin up and run 
uh, a predictive tactics game of some kind, right? Uh, this is interesting to me. And it's the same thing as when Slay the, Slay the Spire got really big while it was still in early access. We saw that trend by the time Slay the Spire released, there were a million clones of it. And now, yeah, yeah go on, go on, Lynn. Yeah, and other side, I think, is the other big one that maybe uh, the rest of the panel didn't spend as much time with it as I did, but I think it was my favorite out of this batch. Um, I think it is a kind of interesting shift because when when XCOM, new XCOM kind of came on and revitalized the, the sort of tactics landscape, the memes were all about like, oh, yeah, when you miss that 95 percent shot, like, it, you know, it's you know, that was that was like a common experience people went through and you know that's been tied back into you know as far as like D&D and like tabletop war games the, these randomness elements where something great might happen or something horrible might happen unexpectedly um and and the fact that now we're moving more towards this the sort of deterministic constructing the perfect turn is uh it's it's a break from that tradition um that I've I've been having quite a bit of fun with even if you know into the breach wasn't quite my cup of tea. A lot of the stuff it has inspired have been. Yeah, I think one of the things that I am surprised by how much that I'm I'm surprised I enjoy this as much as I do is that in general I've always thought that um, mostly what I like is a bit of the action reaction rhythm of a lot of tactics games like I like the, I've always thought well I like the sense of unpredictability right that like oh shit it's combat who knows what's going to happen but this year it did really get driven home how much uh as you play more of these games I suppose it is a bit like the chess problems uh situation where eventually you're just like that's, that's exactly I, what I was going to say Rob yeah, I don't want to stumble. I don't want to play an entire game hoping to stumble into a really interesting situation. Just cut to the part where it's a really interesting situation. And I think that's a lot of what these games are doing. They're 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 speaking to people who've been playing a lot of tactics games for, you know, the last 10 years, but are now saying, "Okay, but don't you really just want to get to the part where you're counting your moves and trying to anticipate exactly what's going to happen? What if that's the entire game?" That, that's true, but it also can make these games kind of exhausting sometimes. Like, you can't just, like, stroll in, kill some trash, and move on to the next thing. Every combat is, like, an active participation where it's like you're on for the whole thing, which uh, that can make it, that can make these a little bit stressful. Yeah, everything matters. You can't make a bad call uh, or your sort of roguelike run is, is over in some way. Yeah. Yeah, and I have that experience with Other Side and Star Renegades where, yeah, it does, like, you get some mental fatigue from having to think so hard about trash fights. Um, I, if I was going to pull in <laughs> something that's, that's that's like, not, not really a strategy game, I think Persona 5 actually does this pretty well in that there are certain tactics that just kind of work most of the time against trash enemies, um, whereas I don't think... You know, the, the tactics games, the deterministic tactics games that came out this year, it didn't really feel like you could. I mean, you know, Star Renegades to some degree, you know, if you have the Han Solo guy, he could just push people off the timeline and like against a lot of quote unquote trash fights, that might be enough to get you through it without too much trouble. Um, 
but yeah, it it can it can get to the point where it's like, yeah, I would I really just like to have some battles that I don't have to think so hard about. Yeah, and I think I think I'm more on not that I want to put words in in Rowan's mouth, but Rowan, <laughs> I do find it stressful. I do I yeah. find these games yeah. incredibly stressful. Yeah, I think the the one thing that doesn't work for 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 me with them is that. It sometimes sets off that feeling. God, okay, this is on my mind because over break I started playing a lot of Valkyria Chronicles, the original one, so I'm super topical. But anyway, <laughs> the end of every mission is like, here's your grade, right? And this always happens in every game I play that like does the S rank or A rank, B rank. I'm always like, oh shit, like I thought I did okay, but I didn't. I sucked. Like I, I got a barely passing grade in that. This feels this feels rough. Like I, I feel like I. I don't feel good about that win anymore. And sometimes that inspires me to try again, sometimes not. But I think some of these more and tactics games of anticipation set that off even inside my decision cycle, right? Where I where like I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh man, I just don't see I don't see the I don't see the puzzle well. I'm not, oh gee, I should have been able to anticipate that. I'm just really, I'm just really fucking this up. Uh, that was that was a lot of my early hours with other side where I was where I was just like falling through trapdoor after trapdoor and I was like oh damn okay I guess I guess I'm not good yeah it's brutal uh I find that problem as well with a lot of card games especially the sort of analysis in in board games it's, it's called analysis paralysis a lot but it's just I take twice as long to finish a run of into the breach as anyone else I know, right? Like literally twice as long. They finish yeah. it in three hours and I finish it in six because I sit there and I watch every turn waiting to see what the best idea. I wait for that good idea to pop out at me because I find the experience of making a snap judgment, like a gut, gut check, good move. And then the next turn, I see the far better move I could have taken. Yeah, they're definitely there's they're the sort of games where you can kind of get good enough to like just barely fail your way through them without really understanding some of the things that you should understand to like play them, you know, well, uh, you know, necessarily. Uh, I think other side definitely has that where, you know, you can you can get to a point where you're you're hanging on like, you know, enough to to like sort of make it through every level with with minimal casualties without really ever graduating to um, sort of that that, I guess, flow state where you're you're making these perfect turns semi intuitively. Um, but it, a lot of that you know, does, does take, you know, require you to spend a lot of time just staring at the board, which if you're having to do that every single map, you know, I, I think it does become kind of exhausting. The other thing that I've noticed that I do is that like, even in one that's easy, like a star renegades battle where like there's one, one enemy left and all I have to do is just beat him up a couple times and he's done. I'm still like, okay, I got to push him off using this. I can't get out of practice here. I can't get sloppy. 
even though I could get sloppy. So it's like my brain is still trying to force me to be activated, even in the rare cases where you don't need to be. But if you get sloppy, you might lose that 15 hit points that makes the difference in you beating the final boss or not, right? Oh, like like when I know that he's not going to hit me beyond the, the shields, right? Sure. It's just staying in the practice of making sure that I bump him off the bump him off the uh the timeline oh i mean finishing cleanly is so important in these things also because sometimes small missteps can still hit you disproportionately hard right like especially when you're mixing in a permadeath uh or like roguelite type framework because this this is often me in the final stages of uh banner saga battles right where like i would finish the harder part of the battle or with the part that felt harder where I had to figure out how am I going to win this thing. It was closing it out without just eating needless damage that I really struggled with. And so I did start, it's very easy to fall into that mindset of, um, have you seen that video? I'm sure, I'm sure you all have seen that video uh, going around. The guy who it, basically it's like what happens when you basically lost a magic game, but somebody just wants to unload the full power of their deck on you. Uh, yes. to get that last hit point. <laughs> and that is kind of how a lot of these games leave me feeling, even when I'm in the cleanup phase where it's like, no, I can't, I can't just clean this up. I have to do some sort of ridiculous, like super combo to really like master some of these mechanics. And you know, the brutal part is in a tabletop magic game, you've got, you've got those official rules on your back, like the tournament rules where you can be like, I concede. And then you are legally like without, conceding anything else in the tournament allowed to walk away but the computer makes you play it out yeah <laughs> yes yeah well the other interesting difference i think that it, for this breed of tactics games versus like the xcom breed of tactics games is that when i'm playing and you know when i'm playing new xcom i feel like most of what i'm doing on a given turn feels fairly intuitive like it feels like what I would maybe be doing if I were commanding a squad of soldiers against an alien invasion in the situation, whereas games like Other Side and uh, Star Renegades and Into the Breach require you to think kind of counterintuitively to play well, uh, which is another big difference that, that I feel when I'm uh, when I'm playing them. So. Into the Breach is also an interesting game for another trend that I have noticed this this year, which is that there's sort of a rise of these casual tactics games. And uh, I've only dipped my toe into one of them, but I don't know if any of you did any of the others, but I've been noticing all these games come out that are like, these are using the form of the tactical games, but they're just sort of like hanging out with your friends, going through a nice little story, uh, like uh, Tenderfoot Tactics and Wintermore Tactics Club, I think it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of this is coming from Into the Breach, which was like a huge hit for a relatively non-strategy game oriented audience. And we're starting to see that like just the idea of the tactics game, which has been either this seemingly very difficult, you're going to lose people in ridiculous places like XCOM or the JRPG version of the tactics game, which is like these increasingly complex uh, building up combos and so on of like a Disgaea. Uh, instead, it's like, well, what if these games were kind of fun and easy? Uh, and I've, I played a little bit of Pendragon, which was uh, an Inkle 
uh, like roguelike tactics game where you're only like playing as one character and you're like guiding Sir Lancelot through England. And uh, I don't know, there's it's this is a fascinating one to watch, I think, as we see like the form becoming like delved into from people who don't have quite as much baggage going into it as people who've been uh, in in the strategy game realm as long as, uh, you know, uh, for access would be. Um, and I think that this, this could be very fruitful, but it could also make a bunch of games that like don't have the joy that we get out of it. No, no. I, I think, I think you have a really valuable point though, because when you look at games like Tenderfoot Tactics or Wintermore Tactics Club, when, at least when I look at them, I see games that are unburdened by the baggage of past designs in a way that is good and refreshing as opposed to the way that I often see it in other genres. And you all are around me enough to know that I get grumpy about this stuff, right? Like <laughs> I am irritated when a game released in 2019 that's a deck building game repeats the mistakes of deck builders released in 2011 or 2012 wholesale. But when I see these, uh, tactics games specifically made by people from outside of the tactics space, they don't have these burdensome expectations of the things that must be in a tactics game. They play a game like into the breach and they're like, I don't understand why I have to control five guys, right? You think that's the, you think that's the hangup? I think uh, what do you mean by that's the hang up? Like you, you think you think there are people who like just that like that level of control, that level like expanding the problem to that scope becomes a an obstacle to them engaging. I mean, I do. Yeah, actually. Hmm. Because I think want that to command their own squad. Sure. Pl- <laughs> I think plenty of people want to expand the command their own squad, right? Or they want to have more than one character. But if you look at the success of these littler tactics games, they are not necessarily in forcing whole battlefield tactical problems on mm-hmm. players. They're forcing turn to turn tactical decisions, which are interesting game design decisions, but they're not putting a fire emblem esque puzzle of a battlefield in front of you, where if you send the wrong character in the wrong direction, they get, killed by their hard counter right well hold on you you try and get a character killed on a fire emblem battlefield let me just tell you that (laughs) like uh but but i get i get what you're saying um and that that does seem to be i i did notice a lot of my friends getting into these games as well and but i don't know is there also is there also an aesthetic associated with some of them like certainly um, when I think about games like Tenderfoot Tactics or um, another one uh, that that was brought to mind today was a game called uh, Root, uh, which is sort of another animals fighting a woodland war uh, type uh, ta- like strategy game. Now, Root's a board game. Okay. Before so it's a, strategy, a, a video game. So I'm just going to say that it's a 2018 board game. It's a super big hit. Right. But, but is there an element of man, people love them some red wall and some, <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Uh, watch and the, it down. The, and so it's that's this perfect awesome. conflux yeah. of the, the sort of modern 
I say modern, but it's it's I guess it's four or five years old at this point. The sort of pseudo cutesy animal art style, right? Very illustrative. And the asymmetrical uh, combat type games where everybody has a different goal and a different way to win and a, everything works a different way with an approachability. Even though they're quite complex games, they gain a, a level of approachability by being like, okay, yeah, you have to figure out your pseudo dynastic monarchical politics, but you're a bird. So, like, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've always, I think that that's always effective. Modders knew all along. Yeah. <laughs> Modders or knew. The, uh, the animal all- kingdom. They eventually added Animal Kingdoms to CK2 as an official feature. So, you know, that's that's the direction that that's the direction strategy games are heading. I'm saying now. And that's why CK2 animals. is still better than CK3. Because there are birds. <laughs> I think you can have a I think you can get like a falcon, but it's not an anthropomorphic falcon. Yeah, CK3. you're not you're not king bird. No, no, you can't leave your estates to the Falcon, unfortunately. Um, it's only one glitter hoof. Or can you? <laughs> There's probably a mod for that by now. I got a, I got a uh, bug hunt to go on. Pardon yeah. me, boys. <laughs> I think... So, I, I think the one of the other things that I am noticing happen with, with some of these games is... I mean, to an extent, is it also just that tactics and strategy and and the things we associate with those are such natural good fits for the kind of resources that are available at the indie level that like to a degree it's also just a question of people realizing like wait it's way more feasible to make a cool game uh that is set sort of around a tactical or strategic dilemmas than it is trying to make a pretty like basically trying to make a sprawling adventure, uh, but like on an, on an indie budget. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's also, it's probably easier to balance for that. You don't have to like worry about all these edge cases. Like, you know, what if you, you know, you miss a shot and the, you know, the boss kills, wipes your whole squad. And that's just frustrating because you feel like it was, you know, you know, the, the dice did you in or whatever. I think that the way that, a lot of these encounters, I think specifically of like the boss, the boss fights for each chapter in other side are these fairly intricately constructed puzzles where they're not they're not necessarily difficult. Once you know what to do, the difficult part is just figuring out what the puzzle is and then you solve the puzzle and, you know, it's it you know, it's it's done. It's the you know, the difficulty is is uh the, the difficult part has already passed you once you understand how the fight works. Um, yeah, which is the more classic approach to what a boss fight in a video game is, as opposed yeah. to the sort of XCOM uh, or XCOM 2 War of the Chosen, where it's just like, yeah, the Chosen are just super fucking badass and uh, they're going to tear yeah. you apart. There's not yeah. a trick here. You're just going to get fucked up. Yeah, yeah. It just keeps you stressed out for the entire encounter, even if you're playing optimally. Um which, you know, I would say that my ideal is probably somewhere in the middle there. You know, I think I, I would say that more the more classic video game boss is that there's some sort of trick to them that makes them makes it possible for you to kill them 
But even once you know that trick, you know, you still kind of have to make good decisions. Um, it's not like it trivializes it to like know where their weak spot are. You're still having to like dodge attacks and stuff is what I would think of as the old school. Whereas, you know, these types of games, they make that discovery step more difficult um, because you kind of have to think about it. You have to think about how your abilities interact with their abilities and if they're going to go through different phases, do I need to be standing somewhere when this particular phase comes? And like, how am I going to manage to still do damage while also not standing in, you know, the place where I know it's going to be instant death on the next turn? Um, and uh, yeah, I think they've, they, 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 they kind of front load the difficulty onto that investigation step and then trivialize the execution, I guess, is how I would put it. Well, not that those are bad points, but um, Rob was talking about the developer's resources, not the player's resources. Uh, well, yeah, that's yeah, and I that's mean, that's uh, like I think I don't know if Rob was specifically talking about Inkle, but like last year they put out Heaven's Vault, which was this big, ambitious, sprawling adventure that was gorgeous and really, really clever, and had all these unique locations and various. Uh, dialogue paths and choices to be made it was a last express like where every place you went you were missing someplace something somewhere else and then they follow that up really quickly it was like a year and three months later or so with pendragon which is this fairly constrained little tactics roguelike which is not a bad thing just it was somewhat of a surprise that they were uh they had managed to get that resource, those resources together and that that design ready for a game that uh, came pretty hot off the heels of uh, a, a different game that I don't know if it did well or badly or anything, but uh, just seemed to be a very different direction and a much simpler one in terms of how much a developer would have to do in order to make it. God, I had forgotten. I wasn't thinking about Inkle specifically, but that that is kind of a perfect example, right? Like Heaven's Ball yeah. was in development for ages. Like I feel like I feel like I heard about that game for three years before it came out, and then it almost immediately they were like, "Uh oh, this didn't. This is not doing what we hoped." And then Pendragon came out kind of with no fanfare, and tons of people were talking about it. Um, and yeah, I, I do. I, I do kind of have a feeling that. And this is not this is not a new point. Like people people talk about this all the time. You know, paradox developers have said like, however much narrative scripting you put in your game, players will feel like they've burned through it uh, at a staggering rate. I think that um, oh gosh, uh, Fallen London developer. Yeah, uh, um, I was gonna say I, I heard also heard that about better. the sunless. Yeah, fail better. Yes, exactly. Right. Like that is a studio that is always up against this problem of like, oh, my God, like how much how much shit do you, do you people need us to write for you? Uh, but to a degree, I think I, I think that tactics games and strategy games do make that a little bit easier to handle because, you know, as we talk about often on this show, theme creates a lot of places where your imagination will fill in blanks that I think might be unusual in a lot of compared to a lot of other games where you need more direct representation of specific ideas. 
Yeah, like especially adventure games are built on the idea of these are the games that have the direct representation and therefore they are the games that are like the most narratively bound. But then you see other games that manage to, you know, create the possibility spaces that uh, you can get excited by in ways that, I don't know, they, they're somewhat less impressive from like a... I don't know, like narrative critical standpoint, but they're also more impressive in terms of I actually want to just play this game and keep playing it for hours and hours. So, hey, we just mentioned theme, though, Um, and I see one of these trends. One of the trends here we have is that the city builder is back, baby. In 20 (laughs) in 2020, city builders were big with the kids. Uh and I was so, but I think for me, I, I definitely gotten away from that genre a little bit. But I am curious. It does feel like the city builder is back, but it's more heavily or specifically themed than it's been in the past. Is that a correct impression, or is it a bit more nuanced than that? Well, I think I think city builders had a theme for a long time, and it was like building a an american style city on an open green space <laughs> so it might just be a shift in themes more than you know a change from no theme to to having a theme but i think we're getting more diversity in themes now and uh i i i think those they're a lot more effective i think i was kind of you know i don't really play like skylines that much anymore but i spent a lot of time on uh Praspera and surviving the aftermath this year um and yeah, I, I think that the variance in themes is very good for the genre. Frostpunk comes up as one that was, you know, great in the very recent past. And uh, the idea that you have a goal that's not just like uh, do a neoliberalism <laughs> is is uh, is very refreshing. I like that. I think the city city builders are still really strongly stratified into resource driven and systems driven. Well, that's not, that's not good. Those aren't good descriptive, but like they're stratified into the kind of city builder where you gather a pile of lumber and a pile of stone and a pile of wood, whatever they're named in that game. And then the kind of city builder where you need to ensure there's enough industrial commercial and residential capacity to make a city happen and then you also build a lot of roads those concepts are still the merger of those two ideas has never quite worked as well as maybe the designers want to and so we're seeing those two paths develop simultaneously with themes on top of them so we're seeing games like this year we saw what three post-apocalyptic city builders and they're the sort of resource driven idea. I think giving some examples here would be helpful. Well, so we I, saw, I was um, just going to, I like, I, sorry, I was so perfectly teed up. I just had to go with John. So like, here I go. So John, what if I, it sounds like you don't like stories. Where you just gather up lumber and build stuff with it. Um, what if there were a, a city builder where, you uh-huh. had to not uh-huh. only gather together the lumber, but also the nails, but also the roof shingles. 
to build things. And what if in order to like build the roads that would let people get to those things, like you can just build a road. Where does the road come from? Yeah. Where does the road come from? If you need asphalt, what if you need tar? How do you heat them? What if you need to import, import your steamrollers from a brother nation because you can't produce your own? Oh my God. You have to import your steamrollers. Yeah, you do. Can you import? Can you build your own steamrollers at some point? Heck so you yes, have- you can. Okay, so so John is is Soviet concrete simulator the the answer to to these problems uh, that that you've been alluding to? Or Workers and resources, Soviet Republic is in and of itself a completely fascinating experiment in unifying the two concepts because it is so open ended that you end up doing all these things without realizing it. It is a completely, literally resource-driven game in that there are two things you care about. They're right there in the name, workers and resources. And how much of that, of those two things you have available to you and can produce run the whole game. But you end up caring a lot about, oh, I need more commercial space. I need to plan out a residential district because you need to support those industries and you need to support expansion. And then sometimes you'll realize I'm paying a fortune importing food. We need farms. So you realize you need to expand into industries you're not already in. But it is never going to be a mainstream game because it is so intense and intensive. And it wants you to pay so much specific attention to all those individual things. Right. It. It drives itself forward, but it really does still require the player to want a lot, whereas something like Frostpunk has that strong narrative framework, even though it ends up working very similar where you realize like, oh, we need more coal, but to get more coal, we need to open another coal mine, which means we need more homes, we need more heating fuel, or we need you know more wood to build things out of, we need stone, we're going to need more taverns, which themselves also require workers, right? That gives you a similar experience without the intensely hardcore urban planning and micromanagement uh, circa 1960 in Eastern Europe thing. So why haven't we done a show on this is my question. Because uh, it's in early access and early access is the devil. We refuse to do any show in early access because John will go on a killing spree. <laughs> I think Rowan has just adequately explained it. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't wait, try to wait, force wait, it wait. on the rest so, of you. So until the it's guy done. who's been the most early access is bad. <laughs> has also been advocating for a show on every, on a game where all of us are like, okay, but it's not out of early access. So like, do I want to learn this game before it changes? Like John, these contradictions need to be resolved at some point. <laughs> okay, I mean, I, let's I hash think it we out. Heighten right. them. Here's where I'm at. Heighten, heighten, heighten. It is a fundamentally unresolvable contradiction because I do think that early access is very healthy for certain games. The problem is when early access became a a commodified label that actually just means this game is in permanent or highly extended development. Because, you know what? I love Dwarf Fortress and I've been playing it since it didn't have Z levels, right? That's early access. That's what Dwarf Fortress is. It's just permanent development. And I realize, you got to realize, there's no way you're going to get games like Soviet Concrete Simulator without a team of uh, guys in Slovakia or an early access framework 
and or an early access framework on Steam that lets them receive money while they're developing an intensely complicated game. It's a game with like a five-year development cycle. No traditional publishing model is going to support that. They're going to have to get money directly from the people who want to see that game finished. But there are a lot of other things that come out in, quote, early access that just need to accept that they're a paid beta for a corporate product that's going to take that's already you know been in development for several years and they just want to make money while they finish developing it and that's it but enough about so inheritor the, so the <laughs> so the distinction for you is more like is 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 early access a necessity or is it an additional way to cash in on an unfinished game. Is but John will be the judge of that. Is? But John will let you know. Well, yeah. I mean, that's why I'm yeah. asking John, because John is the arbiter of morality in well, the I mean, games industry. So That's why God gave me this marble <laughs> throne atop a cloud from which to judge you all. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I think the actual reason we haven't done a show on it is that nobody but John has played it significantly. I think Troy dipped in, but I did yeah. too. And then I was like, you want me to set all the bus schedules manually? Can't I? I just stopped. I stopped believing in communism. I was just like, can't I delegate this to a committee or like, I don't know. Let's just privatize. What if I privatized it? Transport. Yeah. Yeah, Like, come on. (laughs) Yeah. Just, you know, I'm just going to hire some Kulak to run my buses. Like, it's fine. But yeah. Mm, Fascinating. No, I do want to. I do. (laughs) I do want to give it another shot at some point. So workers and resources does in its text, though, like in the friction the player experiences with it, we see the seeds of like neoliberal ennui being sown (laughs) as just the amount of like focus and labor required to administer a comprehensive state uh, does eventually lead you to going to the nearest con artist and being like. So tell me about this monorail you propose. <laughs> well, you know, see, it needs to be, they need to turn it into an MMO, right? Like, as I, as the Supreme Leader, should not have to worry about all of this stuff. I should have other members of the party who are like, okay, you're you're going to be the bus. I mean, czar seems like the wrong term for an Eastern European socialist republic. Um, <laughs> but if you can the, figure out the a bus way. commissar. Uh, this guy is going to be the asphalt commissar. Like, we, we can work this out. If you can yeah. figure out a way that you personally would make money on the buses, then <laughs> you would be more motivated to do that work and everybody would benefit. Exactly. I think that is exactly how it works, yeah. Exactly. So, but here, here's the other thing. Like, so workers and resources sounds like this extreme example of like, finding all the all the interesting friction all the all the challenging choices uh that a lot of city builders allied and bring them into the space where the player needs to consider them but that's 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 such an extreme case because by and large it feels like overall the direction i guess maybe similar to what we're talking about with um you know, more indie cut down tactics games. It does feel like in a lot of these cases, we're also seeing a a swing toward, okay, more heavily, more specifically themed city builders that maybe aren't as intricately designed as a lot of the traditional landmarks in the genre have been, right? Yeah, I think there's another thing going yeah. on here, which is that the, there's this rise of the... Uh, 
the survival this, ah, uh, survival strategy game, the, the Rim Worlds and the Oxygen's Not Included and so on that have these like very specific system based by John's uh, reckoning uh, uh, where you're, you know, playing with 10 or 12 people. You're not playing with a gigantic city. Everything is very, very direct. And I think those uh, those are usually built on like very high difficulty. And if you take that out and make them a little bit more abstract, if you take the difficulty out and make them a little bit more abstract, you get towards something kind of like the old impression city builders, which I think is uh, what is also going on. That's like building up. Like, how do we make these sort of like systems based things where it's about one guy moving a wheelbarrow full of rock. And these are a lot easier to theme because like American cities are gigantic uh, we're not building a city for 3 million people. We're building a city for 30 people or yeah. 300. No, I, I completely agree with you there. And that's where you start to get towards the games that are somewhere below the complexity of something like SimCity 4 and a little bit above the complexity of something like City Skylines. And you get your Surviving the Aftermaths or your End Zones A World Apart or your Frostpunks, your Airborne Kingdoms, your Industries of Titan, uh, and then your sort of rash of early access and uh, indie historical city builders that are coming down the pipe like Sumerians and Nebuchadnezzar. Who wasn't in this group who was not sanguine about Nebuchadnezzar? That was me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wasn't it Fraser who was just like, this is ugly? I don't want to play Fraser it. said that's ugly too, though. <laughs> that's Fraser said my, that's both Sumerians and Nebuchadnezzar were butt ugly and he wouldn't play them. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, they look fine. I don't know. We we should have made Fraser join. That was a that was a surly Fraser day. Those happen every once in a while. <laughs> some some days he's just surly. I mean, I wasn't. Look, the game it looked a little homely. I'm not like I looked at it and I was like, I don't know that. Like, you know, is that a civilization worth building? I don't know. Um, it's, is any civilization worth look, building? I, ultimately, oh, I yes, can't explain to you living in the trees. Exactly. Thank you, Len. That's I all I'm saying. If you don't already know why glazed bricks are awesome, I, I just can't explain to you. Why glazed bricks are awesome. But it starts with glazed bricks, and then you want me to set all the bus schedules. Like, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> you just want, you want the, like, the EVE Online of running a Soviet Republic game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would be Where great. you can be like, I am vice chairman of the committee for the propagation mm -hmm. of mm. gymnasiums, and that's just the one thing you like gotta worry about. I feel like letting the goons like run civilization would be like that's that's basically the um what was it the first hundred names in the Boston phone directory uh, analogy compared to the faculty of Harvard um yeah that feels kind of like what we'd be what we'd what is with. this I have not heard this oh god that was a um I think that was a William William Sapphire. Uh, bromide about like explaining that he'd rather be governed by the first uh, hundred names you'd pull ran like pull out of the Boston phone directory than be governed by the faculty of Harvard University. Um, 
which I, I'd also probably agree with, but for different reasons, his argument yes. was, uh, you don't need experts, uh, and you know, any, any rando, uh, can, can govern and, and probably should. Um, but that was, you know, fundamentally also about attacking the idea of governance and expertise. My objection right. would be faculty at Harvard probably suck. Yeah. Or, or have you ever <laughs> sat in on a faculty meeting anywhere? Very true well, I mean, that's... as well. <laughs> okay. We had that yeah. experiment in the 20th century, and it was basically much of Eastern Europe. So it was the faculty of the uh, faculty of the universities plus the heads of the coaches of all the sports teams, right? <laughs> yes, that, that that's what I picked up from uh, the death of Stalin. <laughs> all I picked up from the death of Stalin was that it w- it would just it would be fucking rad if uh, Zukov had a, yep. a Yorkshire accent. Yes, that's that, really no, that, is, that is exactly what the message of that movie. <laughs> that just would have fucking ruled, and yeah. uh, we should go back and change history. Yeah, Northern Zhukov so, is fantastic. So, John, you're the one who's kind of been playing these early access and so on city builders. Like, what? Which but ones under, of these other protest. than? Yes, under protest. Which ones of these should we be like most interested in keeping our eye on and doing potential shows on? Because there's a lot of things on this list that we made of uh games that are like at some level of mostly done there really are and it's sort of mind-blowing i think that some of the more promising games from past years are a little bit starting to come together uh foundation which is that non unplanned city builder uh medieval thing is getting a little bit better and that's from a few years ago now but they've been working on it pretty steadily I think that some of the more promising looking ones that came out this year, like Space Haven, didn't turn out to be as good as they were looking in the first place. But thankfully, questionably, thankfully, maybe the the historical ones actually look like they're going to be pretty good for all that. I sort of don't like the impression style city builders as a whole. Nebuchadnezzar does look interesting. Sumerians is pretty promising from what I played of it. I'm not overly impressed by any of the many, many post-apocalyptic city builders. None of them have grabbed me. I don't think any of them are are truly great games. Surviving the aftermath put me to sleep like instantaneously. Surviving the aftermath put me to sleep. Uh, The Last Haven is cute, but also put me to sleep. End Zone. Before we leave also left me utterly fucking cold. Before we leave is kind of butt. Uh, <laughs> what's in zone didn't impress me a lot either. Industries of Titan had a promising start and looks interesting. However, it comes with the massive caveat that they want us to design spaceships, which means no one on this oh, podcast <laughs> will ever well, like it. Okay, okay, hold on. It's like yes. it's like a fishing mini game, right? You put a fishing minigame in a game and it sucks. But if you play Ridiculous Fishing or Radical Fishing, whichever one wasn't the clone, that's good. An yeah. entirely fishing game is fine. So if you're like, if it's like a key part of the game that is of interest in and of itself, as opposed to just tacked on to something where my goal is to be the emperor of a space uh, nation, then I think yeah. that can work. Yeah, Kerbal Space Program is entirely about building spaceships, and it's one of the best video games, I would say, ever. Uh, yeah, so. Fair. So, well, and let me yeah. also say this. 
if it's a game where like I am going to like constructing a ship is going to be such a rare and important moment, then by all means I will labor over this this flagship. I yeah. will I will think about like what do I need it to do in my game? Great. But if this is a game where like you're just kind of designing a template and then just turning the crank to spit those out, then this game really isn't about sp- it's not about ship design. It's not about ship design. And so that's where I draw a line. Well, so I, they- I went to go look up Foundation because I hadn't heard of it. And it looks cute, but like the first thing it says on Steam is version 1.6.26, now with key mapping. So that's the kind of game we're dealing with. I think this is kind of like an ultimate John Bolding recommendation well, here. The crap. game that's advertising its key mapping this. Well, most Paradox games still don't have key mapping, so that's... Oh, key mapping is great. Just that's the banner. Like this is odd. If you just type oh, the name in. Yeah. Like if you've been, if you've been on the fence so... about whether you want to jump in... We're, we're we're now we're now tapping into that key mapping demographic. I'm so oh, roasted right now. <laughs> I think you just got owned. Good thing it's I also, like socialism since I've just been publicly owned. Yeah, it's, it's also less than a year old, at least on Steam. It says it was released February first, but I or no, that's two years. God damn it! Um, yeah, it's 2021. That's terrible. Hold on. Uh, so before we get into like what our like sort of hall of fame our our personal choices for our favorite games of this year was rowan i have a question here because i assume this is you writing this <laughs> goodbye auto battlers i wrote no. that oh that was me wow that was my okay. note okay so you think they're dead this is the year that i started off writing a cover feature for a magazine about dota underlords and then by the end of the year I'm not seeing almost anyone talk about auto battlers anymore. They have, they've successfully, they've mobified themselves at at a, at a shocking rate where they're completely siloed from almost the entire rest of the gaming world. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't pick up that massive league of legends or Dota size audience before they siloed themselves off so effectively. They immediately stopped trying to appeal to a mass audience. I'm not sure if it's that they stopped trying, but I think like there was something about the way they were built that automatically like channeled them into you have to know the meta. And that's a real good way to get yourself silent. But yeah, I stopped seeing new ones being built of any interest. And uh, I was I kept up with Teamfight Tactics for probably half the year and then I haven't been paying attention to it and I haven't seen anything really from any part of that whole that whole thing and that you know maybe that's a a candle that burned bright and it was a blast while it lasted or maybe there are aspects of it that are going to be integrated into other games but yeah it seems to have become its particular niche and it's a pretty fun niche I'll still defend that but uh it's not one that seems to have uh gone wild and become like the new big genre the way that it had the potential of doing i do have to say that or it seemed like it had the potential it did it seemed like it had that potential and i also have to say that it's it's on my list of sort of things trends to check out trends to watch and i haven't been able to get that hard into doing the research but it is still taking off in countries 
that are not America and Europe, not English, non-English speaking countries generally. And it is making its way into that gaming sphere much more successfully than it is in our own. Uh, And the original auto chess folks have seen a lot of success, as I understand it, in mainland China. So it's possible this is the kind of thing that we in the U.S. and Europe are going to see sort of sort of go underground for a couple of years before reemerging explosively in a couple in, in 2023 or 24. Right. Yeah, well, it's, it, it'll be our gacha games, perhaps literally. So it's time to talk about like real standouts of the year. And one of the things I wanted to talk about here at the start is uh, 4X Grand Strategy, because on the one hand, it feels like we kind of have an obvious leader here. Mm-hmm. But also, on the other hand, it feels like there's not a lot of competition there at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were two like there were two strategy games that I felt were really stand out that came out this year that I played this year. And the rest of the field was I mean, there were some good games, but like they weren't really strategy games. Um, obviously, yeah, the, the top one is, is CK3. I feel like this is almost by default as the year of CK3. Um Crusader and it feels three. it feels like that. It feels like it's just kind of tired and default. And you know, really? I really, I really no, I've really been enjoying it. What I think that, um, the the main the major reason I have not played it as much as I played CK two the year it came out is because it is very similar to CK two, and I've already played thousands of hours of CK two, so I don't think it took me as long to hit a point where I was like, yeah, I've kind of seen what I want to see from this until we get some DLC later down the line. Interesting. For the most part, it feels like the same, you know, the same great flavors. Um, I really like that they made it more accessible. I really like, uh, you know, the 3D character models definitely add a lot to it. But yeah, I think if I had played this game without having previously played, you know, 2000 hours of CK2 or whatever, I'd probably still be playing it a lot more actively than I am right now. So I think Crusader Kings 3 is very good. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. And all right, Rob. <laughs> that comma was, was, yep. was don't, uh, conspicuous. <laughs> don't you sass me. John, welcome to the dark side. Boy. <laughs> Rowan's Ro- been posted up in like a deer stand waiting for this since like <laughs> since since the day we recorded. Like midway through, Rowan's like, but what if this just isn't that good? Here's the thing. Here's my thing. All right. I like CK3. I liked it a lot. I enjoy the hell out of it. I think it's better than CK2 in fundamental ways. There are truly impressive pieces of design in it. I think the stress system is a very basic, very basic piece of game mechanics that just completely revolutionizes the game. It just fundamentally changes how interesting it is to play. However... I haven't, I'm going to, I'm going to say it. I don't think I've played it since the week it launched. Yeah. And part of that is it's my job to play other games. And so my game time is often spoken for, but it didn't compel me to come back to it. And to a certain degree, this is, this is, um, this is going to come off to strategy game enthusiasts as a meaner comment than I actually intend it to be, but to a certain extent, I'm reminded of Civilization VI. Mm. In that 
yeah, it's better than the other one probably, but like, it's just not drawing me back in the same way I expected it to. And I don't mean that completely because Civ Six is a game that I played for 30 or 40 hours and I've never wanted to go back to. I've never had the urge to go play it again. Whereas CK3 is still inside my folder of games that when I do, I have a, I have a special folder of games called Me Time. And that's <laughs> when I get to play a game for myself and not for other people. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think I think we've just failed the the title the title of the episode. <laughs> Congratulations to time. Crusader Kings three. You might be underwhelming in several key ways, but but there is still a folder where John means to get back around to you. You didn't you didn't get banished to the outer edges of my Steam library. All right, <laughs> you're in the inner circle. You're just you're just like in eighth place in the inner circle. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, yeah, I I think that's that's it. Like it's it's really good. It's really well designed. There are lots of things about it that are like huge improvements, and I'm just not excited to go back and play it. Like I would go back and play it. Someone says, "Hey, Rowan, we're playing Crusader Kings three. Do you want to join our multiplayer game?" And if I'm free, I'd be like, "Oh yeah, that sounds like a good time." Uh, but like. The thing I remember about Crusader Kings 2 is that I reviewed it and I thought, okay, this is a good game. I'm enjoying myself. There's, you know, the interface The interface is a bit of a mess. But then, like, I submit the review. I go back and start, like, three more CK3 campaigns across the next month. Or CK2 campaigns across the, the next month. And, and, and the this game is just, it, there's, it doesn't have that... It doesn't have like a, that hook to it. It doesn't have that aspect of it that gets under my skin that I expect from the very best strategy games. The ones I'm excited to say, this is the game of the year. Last year, did Three Kingdoms have that hook? Oh, hell yes. I'm Does going, CK3 have that hook? I don't think so. I don't, gonna, and that might be not yet. It might be that I've played too much CK2. It might be yes. that it's just not that exciting and novel a thing, but that's still what it is. Like, I don't. Yes, it's probably the best strategy of the game of the year by default, but that's by default. That's a shrug. That's not something I'm riveted by. No, I think it absolutely is a case where if, if Crusader Kings 2 didn't exist, I would still be playing this obsessively, which I'm checking on Steam. I've played 170 hours, you know, since September. That's oh, a lot man. That's not for any no, game that's not, not a paradox you. game, you know. <laughs> But yeah. Uh, yeah, you played like that much of Warhammer 2 in the last two weeks. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, no, I, I like I get what you're saying. I do think a lot of it, at least for me, is that it doesn't do a lot of things that I hadn't already gotten out of my system by playing Crusader Kings 2, you know, for seven years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'll be interested to see where, you know, where it goes and how it builds in on the foundation that they've established. But, yeah, it isn't it isn't the first game I think of when I'm trying to figure out what I want to do in my limited free time, <clears throat> which could be that I don't like, you know, partly I don't spend as much of my free time playing games as I used to um, since I'm playing so many games for work. Uh yeah, I mean that is that is that that is something I've kind of pontificated on. Is like why does it feel like oh yeah, of course Crusader Kings three is the best strategy game that came out this year. Why am I not like I was in two thousand twelve with CK two? Why am I not like I was in two thousand thirteen with EU four where I was like fuck yeah, this is the best game that came out this year. 
everyone should play it, you know, I, I don't feel super gung-ho about it, but then, like... Well, it's obviously not the game, so it must be some deep flaw in myself, because Paradox <laughs> couldn't have done a sequel that might ever disappoint me at all. But I can't, like, I can't point to anything that would be like, oh, CK2 had this hook, and it's just missing from Crusader Kings 3. Okay, here, like, here's a question that I've been turning over in my head. And I uh-huh. can't remember if you said this, Rowan, on the podcast, or if this was a conversation I had later with um, Dave Dave Heron, uh, our friend, has texted me a few times about this game. But someone said to me that they felt like they got down to just the business of map painting really quickly in Crusader Kings 3, and that became what kind of the, the loop of progress was in that, in a way that CK2 didn't feel like it was driven by that as much. Um and maybe oh, those wild. are rose tinted lenses, but I had a completely different experience with CK three. Yeah, I was immediate when I started playing CK two. I started playing it. I didn't start playing CK two until 2015, 2016, maybe it'd been out for years. Um, wow. Get off the show because I was an EU four person. <laughs> oh, welcome back. Uh, <laughs> And I think I still believe that EU4 is the better game. Uh, Agreed. And so when I started playing CK2, I spent a lot of time map painting and I enjoyed the RPG stuff when it came up. But like it was an optimization exercise in so many ways of like, I want to get the most I can out of the lifetime of each individual ruler. Whereas when I started playing CK3, I was like, let's go on a Holy Empire wild ride and just see how many sisters we can make queen of Jerusalem before we get through this thing. <laughs> I was just very much more interested in and enjoying the characters in my court and interacting with them and my vassals and my liege rather than trying to figure out how to sort of usurp my way up the chain of command, because it felt like in CK two, a lot of the most interesting stuff started happening once you got to the kingdom level. Whereas my experience with CK three was, that I was happy to be sort of a duke and be vaguely subservient and influenced by someone else so that I didn't have to deal with the sort of world political problems like West Francia is going to war with Andalusia and you married off your cousin two generations ago and now you're in an alliance or whatever. Hmm. Well, Liana's question about what's missing that gives it that interesting hook or friction, uh, the council. If you want I do one miss thing, the council. if but, you want one thing, like having a duke who can just be an asshole who stops you from doing anything else until you figure out how to deal with him, that was a much more interesting thing. But CK two didn't have the council at launch, though. That came with that's true. Years later, that is that is a true fact. So for comparing launch CK two to launch CK three. I, I don't know what it would be that other than it's not as novel anymore that made me not as it's too easy. It's both yeah. easy to find out how to do things and it's easy to actually do the things. You just oh point God. at a county and say, this is mine. Great. Now, That's it. I'm super glad that I mean, I, I'm kind of with you, but also to an extent here, like listen to us be like <laughs> paradox. Your game is too intuitive. <laughs> it's not intuitive. Oh, like the intuitive is this. good. 
It's that it doesn't seem like it has like proper reactions. Like if you are like at all competent in reading the messages you get in this game, you will have an empire within like 200 years. Like that's just how the game is built. It's built to be that easy. It's built to get you on a track where you're just like the protagonist of all of Europe. And I think that like it could use a little bit more reactivity and, uh, counterattacks and you know things that'll fuck you up because that's when crusader yeah. kings is at its most fun is when you're desperately trying to keep your the scraps of your like duchy alive as all the wolves that you've uh pissed off across the last 20 years come to your door and this game is very easy to get past that segment of and then just not have to worry about it again yeah and that's that seems to be like kind of a general trend with paradox development studio too like every Every time I like read a dev diary for Imperator and, and doesn't mention like making the late game high, harder, I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, it, like it's a this don't have to make the late work. game better if your mid game is so <laughs> dull that every no one ever sees the late game. Uh, yeah, like I, I, and I, that's the Stellaris guarantee. And I think that they, I think maybe they miss the fact that the reason Eve Four works on its own in that way is because of the time period yep. that we're, we're talking about. And when you're looking at time periods that didn't have these multiple huge competing global empires, you have to do something to create that conflict. Um, and, you know, CK3, I think, gets, you know, gets higher marks on that than most of the other ones just because there's so much personal conflict going on that... When there's not a major geopolitical conflict, you still have stuff to do. And I like that. I like my medieval Sims. I like my, you know, backroom backstabbing and love affairs and all this other little stuff that comes up along the way. Um, but yeah, it is kind of like EU4, because of the scenario, works on its own in ways that these other time periods they've tried to tackle don't work as well. And they don't see that they're going to need to nudge it into working more like EU4 does. Um, you know, or they don't prioritize it as much as I wish they would. All right. So congratulations to Crusader Kings three grand strategy <laughs> game of the year. Um, Brutal. We, you know, we, we love the space. We love the genre and uh, we're about this as happy as you'd expect. That's not to <laughs> say. It's a, I mean, it's a fantastic game. This is a classic three MA. Like we're going to, here's throw the thing though. Other interesting for- grand strategy games did come uh-huh. out this year. I played Shadow Empire and I liked it a lot. And I haven't convinced the rest of the podcast to do a show on it yet. Because no, we're it- so close. We are we're like we're on the yeah. two yard line. We are close. But there's uh, there's a lot in that game that I think is interesting. It's a massive. It is a war game. Fundamentally, it's a hex war game, but it has more political and economic, I want to say, interaction and the economic logistic interaction in the game is super interesting because it puts you in that sort of hearts of irony space where you're designing and building your own equipment and figuring out what's feasible. But it does it in this insane science fiction setting where you're like, yeah, I would love to make more uh, more heavy artillery, but the planet we're on just doesn't have that much metal. So infantry it is. Let's breed like we're going to overwhelm <laughs> them with numbers because that's literally the only choice. It's got wild shit going on. 
Hearts of yeah. Irony, so, by the way. Is yeah, the I was going to say, that sounds like, like yeah. we'll get playing to it. is like, yeah, the checks and the, the millennial strategy so. game. Uh, yeah, for for sure. Uh, OK, we like I promise we're going to do Shadow Empire like so like the, we will we will find we will find a council to discuss. the funny thing is that. It's now changed so much of the design that I'm going to have to play another 60 hours of it to have any idea what's going on. Well, then <laughs> then we'll all be in the same. We'll all be in the same boat. Uh, no tactics. I think we've got a lot to choose from here. Um, in terms of what, what our standouts were, I would say, like for me, I played through Gears Tactics. It was fine. Like I liked it a lot. It was, it was, it was charming. It was fun. I kind of did what I would want from a Gears Tactics. I'd be really excited based on that to see Gears Tactics too. Um, but in terms of maybe being a little too obvious, maybe a little too, uh, unvarying in what worked, I think Gears Tactics did turn into a game that I was kind of completing just to complete, uh, but I wasn't really being driven through it. I was surprised how much I enjoyed Chimera Squad, uh, the XCOM. <laughs> speaking, of games that we, speaking of games that we loved in the first week that it came out and then have been uh, never seriously ignoring. <laughs> I, was, I was really happy with Chimera Squad. I don't know. It was a delightful little surprise. It was a finished game. It didn't take a ton of time to play. Yeah. And I'm going to have a fond memory of it for a long time. That said, I, I can't let an opportunity to discuss that game go past without saying, man, that game was released right under the wire. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> if they had planned to release it during the summer, they would have had to delay it a year. I mean, it's literally a game where like half your well, not half, but like. Some of your ex-cops are legit, like, ex-Advent fascists. Yeah, it's a, it's a game where you serve no-knock warrants against minorities. That's what you do. Yeah. And, and then the, you're, like, told, go do this and find the evidence to make this justified. Which you do because it's a game where you're not actually supposed to be playing the fascists, except that you are. Oh, Another another favorite aspect of it is you could use non-lethal ammunition to stun enemies and get experience bonuses for that or information bonuses or whatever. But that's useless after like the first one. So you may as well just kill everyone else that you run into. Yeah, there's but it it is it is a very good little tactics game in a lot of ways. It just was awkward politically when it came out and swiftly became like. Oh God, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, I yeah. Ella, did you have more to say on this no. one? Okay. Um, we didn't do a show on Empire of Sin, and uh, I think that the people here who reviewed it should maybe say a couple words just to have a uh, an official three MA take on the uh on the table. I'll I'll lead off. I don't know. <laughs> I reviewed it. I don't know if uh, Lynn, did you review it? I didn't review it. I had to play it. it. Okay. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I gave it a a four. I think out of ten, and it's a big disappointment of the game. If you were looking forward to that as your big tactics release this year, it is deeply underbaked. The systems were all unbalanced. The core gameplay just 
wasn't there in a thought through way. It thought just through was is a, a good way to put it, because yeah, it does like it takes some time to realize why it's broken. <laughs> like I, I think the reason it did well at preview events and stuff is that you know it, it takes a little bit to really truly start you know falling apart. I think if you played this game for maybe 10 hours and then put it away forever, you could possibly come away with it with a positive impression. Yeah, no, I think um, that's entirely possible. You don't quite yeah. realize how broken everything is until you've been playing it for a bit. It just seems a little janky. Yeah. But the yeah. fundamental balance is often things like how much money you can make and how much it costs to do things. I'm not talking about uh, deep problems like there's not a council in CK3. I'm talking about fundamentally the numbers don't line up very well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's very disappointing, especially for the interesting bones that are there. There's really cool stuff involving all the characters that are in it and their relationships with each other and how they interact. But it simply doesn't come together into a fun game. And that's if you ignore all the bugs on top of it. It's just right. a real shame. Is it like the sort of thing that in a year we'll be excited about? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they can fix fundamental issues with the gameplay design based around things like just currency and what costs how much money. If they can balance those numbers, yeah, but as they are now, those numbers are all just a huge mess. Mm. Yeah, it's it, that it's and, tough. It's, it's a bummer because I always had the feeling he was trying to do too much. Um, and that's... Actually, that's, that's maybe the wrong way to put it, um, because the concept of the game necessarily required it doing all these things. Um, but I think it does sort of seem like there's a reason organized crime strategy games have been hard. And it's because you need these compelling you need some kind of compelling business sim where also gunfights are cool and exciting and also, maybe there should be some sort of like Crusader Kings esque narrative strategy that's happening, so that you can truly get your your Godfather vibes. But that's those those things pull in such starkly different directions, and two of them you can get to go together. But it feels like the history of the genre is games trying to run that table and having gaping holes at the center of them. Yeah, and, and I think they kind of they fall back too much on like the coolness of the setting and the theme. Uh, not just talking about Empire of Sin, but like also some, you know, other mafia games that just haven't come together. It's like they've got there's like 1920s jazz and they'll throw some sort of like filter on it. And like in Empire of Sin, like the lore for a lot of the characters is actually really cool. And I could tell they spent a lot of time on it. Um, and then, you know, it's it's just covering up the fact that, that the systems are kind of broken underneath and they're kind of leaning on thematics a bit too much. Um, yeah, it's, it, I, I wanted it to be good. I want, I want somebody to figure out how to do this genre. Well, I think it'd be great to have a sort of strategy game where you are having to wrestle with the legitimate authorities in different ways. I think that in itself is something that hasn't really been explored as fully as it could be. Yeah. And the legitimate um, authorities in empire of sin are, are simply not present. Yeah. It's like not even a concern. Like I, I should have be having to buy off city councilors and stuff like that. Um, 
or, you know, intimidate, you know, intimidate the police chief and things, you know, those, those kind of things I think would make for a really interesting strategy game. Um, it would kind of solve the map painting problem a little bit in that, okay, I'm never going to be the actual ruler of this, you know, whatever this map is. I have to figure out how to get as influential as I can without ever actually holding any legitimate power. Um, I'd play the heck out of that game. But uh, yeah, well, that's not really what it was, unfortunately. Well, this is an issue that we've talked about with other games in other subgenres like Imperator, where like this is these empires are not about like Carthage just marching an army into Spain yeah. and being like we have we're directly ruling it's it's all these like little city states that are like we're aligning with Carthage and we're providing you know whatever yep. we can to them uh and so like just the really idea of point. influence within a strategy yeah. game as a key <clears throat> thing that's not simply a um not simply just like a currency, like I have 50 influence, I can buy an alliance, but like actually figuring out how people would like subtly kind of tilt towards or against uh, who you are is that yep. I think that's that would be a major step forward for the genre. Um, Shadow Empire actually seemed like it was doing some things along those lines that were interesting because it was it's like this hardcore war game simulation thing and you can see how the influence is sort of tilting in various directions but yeah, that that would be that would be a lovely problem to have solved. So, do we feel there's a clear standout in the tactics space this year that we're like, you know, if there's one tactics game that you should come out of 2020 having played, <sighs> um, you know, no, we'll, I don't we'll know. Let stand not. for other side, <laughs> and it's awesome. I I was gonna say like the two that I think I'll remember and might come back to years from now are probably gonna be other side and Star Renegades. Those those were the ones that to me were like okay yeah this is not just something that I'm gonna play and forget forever. Yeah, Star Renegades would be my choice as the best one of these, but that's like yeah. it's still like a B plus kind of game. It's like you're doing a lot of really interesting things. Star Renegades two is gonna be fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's it doesn't feel like it's quite all the way there, but like. If I had to recommend any of these, yeah, that would be the the default one, except for those of us who are temperamentally unable to play two DJ RPGs. I think that <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, I think we got a lot of B tier of of like not B tier, B grade strategy and tactics games this year, specifically in the tactics space, and it's awesome. I I am so happy at the variety of tactics games yeah. I played this year, right? I played Chimera Squad. I played some of Gears Tactics. I didn't finish it, but I thought it was interesting. I played Phantom Brigade. I played some of the Battle Brothers expansion, which is very good. I'm just looking at our list. Like what I played Chaos Galaxy this year, which was a fascinating game. Like I've never seen a four, not a four X, a grand strategy tac grand strategy tactics combo game so successfully reduced to its basics. And I'm so happy with everything I played this year that was tactics. I don't feel like I wasted wow. my time very often, and that's really satisfying. Our 2020 tactics game of the year is you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, tactics game developers, for just going nuts everywhere. Like, yeah. Keep it up. Oh, uh, I, actually, I, though, <laughs> not, to, not to completely moot my own point there. Uh, 
let me also back to our chicken shit my way out of this by saying Desperados 3 because there's the stealth tactics is I, I don't think it, it stands a, there's not there's not enough games happening there usually that I'm like there is a genre like it is but it's a genre that like its entries are kind of measured over a period of years rather than a single year but Desperados 3 um also really cool like one of one of my games of the year certainly um I didn't even, even if, get to Desperados 3 I'm still thrilled to play it I am too cuz I really liked Blades of the Shogun and I haven't even booted it up yet so uh, that, there's also Partisans 1941, which appears to be exactly the same genre, but set on the Eastern Front as the Russians killing Nazis, which uh, you love I to would see like it. to. That's a three. I would, I would staple right there. Yeah. Yes, I would like to try that out and just haven't yet. But yes, that's on that's on my list of to do's. I feel we talked about uh, this a lot, but like of the city games that are actually out this year and they're real things you can buy. Um, not that you, no, hold on. You can, you can buy whatever you want, but in terms of finished products, uh, that yeah. we should be considering for like city builders, uh, is there wrong? anything here that we're like, yeah, coming out of 2020, this is the one. Buying yeah, only like, finished products? Well, the only, I mean, the only other game that even was like competing for CK3 for me for like best strategy game of the year was probably Paraspera. So that would be my answer. Like yeah. the, that's other than CK3, yeah. it is the standout strategy game of 2020, um, which is like, again, it's not like incredible. Like, don't like I, I to the point where I would say you can't miss it. It has some issues, I think, similar to what Rowan said about Star Renegades uh, and also said about Paraspera on the Paraspera show. I think Paraspera 2 is going to be unbelievable. Um, <laughs> if, yeah, you know, I agree. if and when they ever get to make it, um, yeah, the more I replayed it, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't like how this isn't really an ecosystem. It's just a bar you have to fill up one time and then it kind of turns off that whole part of the game because you don't have to worry about it anymore. That, that in terms of the terraforming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. um, but yeah, I thought the story was really good. The branching story, it was like really good sci-fi writing. I've done all three endings now and they are all pretty interesting in different ways. Other than the fact that they all involve like a tremendous amount of waiting to get, you know, <laughs> space elevators to like sure. put satellites up. Um, yeah, I mean, we just did a show on it. So there's not really a lot new for me to say other than, you know, I like watching Mars transform into a green planet with a breathable atmosphere and... Uh, um, numbers go yeah. up red sphere turn green yeah it's good hard times. to disagree with this premise i i want to point out i i looked at what i played this year and i put it at the top of the city builder list we hadn't talked about it yet but transport fever 2 was actually a december 2019 release but i didn't mm-hmm. get to it until this year sincerely and i thought it was quite good it's really satisfying it's a solid logistics mm-hmm. game and it does fill that niche if you're interested in those sorts of historical progression transport and logistics games uh i looked and i played 60 hours of it this year so it can't suck and it's got a really interesting and active okay that's not true that was definitely if it's in john's me time folder uh that's just a guarantee of quality uh in fact yeah, uh-huh. uh these games should on the box art have like a little folder the little john the little john me time folder icon me time um, with a seal little, of quality little exclamation mark at the end 
You're not wrong, though. This is the You're year, though, right. to, to bring some order to my um, Steam library. I did create a category that was bad games never revisit. <laughs> <laughs> I have had that for a while. Yeah, I, I had to it, yeah. like I, I never wanted to be like, OK, because it did not it did not feel like the Steam library it was a place for value, you know, value judgments. But this year I was like, you know what? Some of these things need to go in a hole. You know, yeah. that's like a surefire way to make sure you're going to open that up and, and then reinstall those games, right? I was like, oh, it couldn't have been yeah. that You're going to be like, what's yeah. in the bad games Wait. folder? Oh, yeah. There's going to be there's gonna be a Waypoint or Vice stream where they're like, we're going to stay up for 24 hours and just make Rob play these games and talk about them. That Yeah, then, drink, okay, I'll be, I'll drink be happy gin. to do that and I'll explain my reasoning why. And I will, but of course, I'll also prune that list that anything, anyone I know personally... Uh, will not see their game appear in there because obviously I love the the, the games uh, that people I have to look in the eye at some point make. Um, but no, I just but yeah, you got to use that hide game function so you never see yeah. it again and you're never tempted to reinstall and spend 20 hours playing a game that you fucking hated the first time and you're gonna hate again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so Rowan, real quick, I just want to run something past you. I had a weird arc with Total War this year. Uh, yeah, I was so high yeah. on Three Kingdoms, and I came into this year just wanted to play more Three Kingdoms. And I did. I played a fair amount of Three Kingdoms. Oh, those first two expansions were just like, yeah, this is the only game I ever want to play ever again. Right. And then The Furious Wild came out. Yeah, which was my favorite expansion. <laughs> and that is kind of where I hopped <laughs> off the train. Yeah. No, that's that. That was pretty much exactly my arc. It was like I tried to play as the Donmon, and like I didn't go as deep as you, uh, and I didn't like get into the in depth. This is why I'm not enjoying this. Like you wrote about this for Vice, uh, I just didn't really feel that motivated to play it and haven't gone back and just started like a regular dude game. But uh, I will probably be doing that, especially if they. Another issue is that like. I really, ex- I got really excited for the next expansion to be like focused on the Battle of Guandu and like flesh out uh, some of the factions that need to be fleshed out a bit more. Like Yuan Shao just does not have Dynasty Warriors working for him, and he should. And uh, like I'm just waiting for them to add those guys, and they're not added yet. So I'm just like, come on, don't have all day. I mean, I do have all day, but come on. See, and I'm like, I don't care. Not necessarily about them adding a bunch more main character, like like B no. and C tier main characters. I'm like, I want Korea, I want the Xiongnu, I want to be able to invade China with like horse archers. I want to be able to like, you know, all that sounds about- great. I just do not want to be like, okay. So it's not that big a part of the map, but then it's just a nightmare to move around. And I get like, oh, it's the jungle movement penalty. Okay, cool. But also it just means that you turned part of the map into Rome fucking too. Where also, I might have just said Ming, I meant Han. I want to correct that before somebody in the forums has to. No, that's a good, that's uh, a good point. That's, that's, yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah I, was, I was reading about the Ming this week, but I meant but, B and C tier Han characters. I don't This is my point. We're like, armies transiting from point A to point B is not the interesting part of a Total War game, like, ever. Um, which, you know, can lead us back to, then, then why is it not a territory map, Rob? And then I'm just on my bullshit, but we're going to set that aside. We're going to let that die. <laughs> we aren't going to discuss it or get back into it. But I do think, like, the Furious Wild, so much of the game became, like, 
oh my god, can my army of Nanman just fucking move? Can they just get, can I just get out of this jungle? Just please, God, let me out of this jungle. And it cut, like, I think that was a huge part of it. I liked the thing the Nanman did to change the combat dynamics of the game, I thought was cool as hell. The whole notion that you have an army that, like, oh boy, you need to, yes, you will win the first punch of the battle, but then you need to quickly run the table because your army has no sticking power. That was cool. I I liked that. I liked having to sort of figure out how to work with the Nanman, though I don't think that led to interesting choices about whether you wanted to... Um, What's I don't know what the game's term for it is, but like it's it Hanify your army. Yeah, do you basically. want to go back to having an army that's more like the armies you already played, or do you want to make your different army more different? And fun? Yeah, or, or and like, <laughs> do you want to mix and match these two sort yeah. of schools of thought that don't go together? So I think that also kind of led to a cul-de-sac. But yeah, I just I didn't three three kingdoms. There's still so much there that I like, but like Furious Wild. It kind of turned me off because I think every time I went back to it, I was like, well, I got to play my Furious Wild game. And I didn't want yeah. to. Yeah, it's it, it it felt like it's too much of a distraction from the main event. Yeah. And I think some of that is kind of a business decision where they were like, this is not merely like this chapter expansion like we've done with the, the previous three uh, uh, new starting dates. This is like a whole mini campaign in and of itself. This is an entirely different get way to view the Three Kingdoms game. So it's like a mini campaign or a medium-sized campaign attached to the larger campaign that tries to make this aspect of the board as interesting as like the collapse of the Ha dynasty and the rise of Tao Tao. Yeah, like, and it's just... It does not have that hook of like the characters uh, like interacting like, you know, with the historical knowledge. It doesn't have it's just it doesn't seem to have like the diplomatic thing like they made Shizi a new character to play, but he's just kind of dropped way at the bottom of the map and doesn't necessarily interact with anyone directly for a while uh it's yeah yeah and and i think that's a good point too the whole like the mini campaign thing in no time at all the nanman are consolidating rapidly so that like basically you mop up a couple easy targets and then you got maybe like a almost like a mini three kingdom situation where it's like okay here's a here's the few remaining players now to quickly slog through these guys and now i'm gonna bust out into han territory and like basically play three kingdoms and i'm like what if i just got to the part where i play <laughs> what if i just went to the three kingdoms part and did that because that's what i'm here for um i'm not so much here to win this easy mini campaign uh like in the kind of junior varsity uh, division. Yeah, of- I, I, I agree with that. I think that's also true of the yellow turbans to a lesser extent where it's like the end goal of any three kingdoms campaign, regardless of who you start as should be to become emperor of China. Like that should be the end point, regardless of your starting position. And the fact that the non-mon campaign has kind of this special, like you were saying, junior varsity victory condition. It's like, well, no, I united the Southwest and now I want to be emperor of China, like include, include some mechanics for me to go on and do that. If that's what I want to do. Yeah. And I think also you, you do end up in a, I think a lot of strategy games sort of can lead to this sort of um, 
dilemma of okay but why do i want to do that via the pressures generated by the game like in three in in the three kingdoms campaigns like because there's this sort of chaos is a ladder type situation where the stakes keep getting higher and like even your ally if they rise too high will have so many incentives to turn on you uh, that you're just like, well, I guess I better start grabbing territory too, because in order to survive, I just need to keep getting bigger, but you keep get, becoming a bigger target yourself. That's a cool dynamic. That is a cool spiral that drives a lot of the main campaign. As the non-mon, I was like, okay, I got these people wrapped. Uh, wait, I've got a few. So I've got my secure valley I'm in, and I've got a couple choke points. Now it is just a question that, like, now I just have to do this because my motivation for doing it is I'm here to become Emperor of China. But there's nothing interesting about that from the position of, like, playing as the non-mon. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, there's no, there's there wasn't a lot of pressure, I think, coming for me to explore that line of play uh, once I'd tied that off. Um, here's here's uh, the other thing, though. There's another, oh, go ahead. No, because I was going to get to Troy. Not the, not oh, the guy okay. in the game. <laughs> yeah, fuck that guy. Um, <laughs> no, the, it it kind of ties into Warhammer and like this trend in uh, the Total War games where each faction plays super differently. And uh, even in the initial Three Kingdoms expansions, the Yellow Turban one and the 194 one, uh, like Sun Se plays has his own totally different play style from Sun Jian. Like the, the first the initial three kingdoms uh characters are pretty generic like Liu Bei has some uh has some like economic perks where he can make cheap peasants and Tao Tao can like do some fun little diplomatic things but they're just like regular characters whereas the further out into the uh further away from that within the uh relative to their importance to the story it starts getting weirder like Cog Rog is like this merchant king who doesn't even really need to expand he just like makes shit tons of money um and then as the game progresses like they or as the game development progresses the new factions have increasingly uh complex or unbalanced and I don't mean unbalanced as in like they're able to win or lose. I mean, unbalanced as in you're kind of always in this asymmetrical position uh, like uh, Lu Bu. Uh, like basically, if you're not constantly fighting, you're going to collapse. Uh, Dog Zhuo in the initial, even in the initial release, if he's not like destroying cities, he's going to collapse. Uh, so there's this like impulse to keep expanding, even when it's kind of a bad idea. And then you go... You look at Warhammer and it's followed like roughly the same progression where like the further in development it gets, the wilder its faction gets. Like the Empire was one of the first factions in the game, like in the initial release. Uh, and it is like a basic, you know, total war uh, faction that has infantry, cavalry, uh mm -hmm. archers, and, you know, some magic and some... Uh, uh, siege engines uh, but then like if you play the imperial character that they released uh, in 2019 who's over on Lustria that he's like doing quests to hunt uh, special beasts and yeah. when he gets the beast then he can get cavalry gaining and, RPG like, party members yeah yeah so <laughs> there's like this increase of specificity that 
uh, happens in these games that at sometimes it feels like they've just gotten too specific. Like, I just don't want to play this specific of a character. I just kind of, maybe I just want to play a regular guy or (laughs) maybe I just want to find the specificity that works for me. And like in Warhammer, this is, there's a lot more options for that. But with the three kingdoms, like, I don't like to play as Dong Zhuo. I don't like the you have to destroy cities or you're just going to get fucked. Like, I do like to play as Sudsei and Lu Bu. The constantly keeping your momentum going is fun. So that's okay. And then, like, I look at the Nanmon and they just seem to have the specificity that I'm like, no, I don't really want to do this. But that's the entire expansion. Yeah. It's just the Nanmon. Rowan, you don't, and... you don't have to play as Pontus. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's it's okay. You don't you don't have to play as Pontus. There's other factions. No, but yeah. So so this so this sort of yeah. This is a trend that I think we could probably even do a whole show on. But like the increase of specificity of like uh, empire or leader design in strategy games is something that has like dramatically yeah. escalated from 2005 when you know Civ three just kind of had some generic things and we worked with that and now it's just everything has to be a very specific faction that sells itself like you go to the steam page you see if you get the non-mon then you have all yeah. these new types of things when maybe if the non-mon were just some guys then we'd be a little more excited about it i don't know yeah it's so directed at people who um it's again it's, it's sort of like it feels like it's being built actually I would be, no it's interesting i would have considered myself kind of in this category though people who were like oh you've played a ton of this game but here's some interesting twists we're going to throw at you uh and instead, yeah, for me, it becomes so prescriptive. The The sales pitch is, can you optimize along these wild and wacky lines? And it's like, I, I could, but I don't want to. I just don't want to. Like, if I want, like, that is a different game, and I do not want to play that game. If I wanted to play a game, I wouldn't be playing your game. I think it was inevitable that some of the design philosophy from the Warhammer games would creep out into other, uh, other Creative Assembly Totals War yeah and i'm a little disappointed that it creeped out in the way that it did which was by sort of abandoning them the very thin veneer of historicity they had used in past games to say like yeah the way that a gallic tribe faction progresses through the unit tiers is a little bit different from the way that the romans progress through the unit tiers and they have different slightly different strengths that was a more interesting design vein for the sort of spear, sword, bow, rock, paper, scissors combat that past games had and giving us fire arrows and tigers maybe wasn't the most interesting decision they could have made with those factions in Three Kingdoms, but that's where they went anyways. Yeah, loosing animal hordes is never the most interesting decision that Total War can make. Like, I think if I were to lay down a design rule for the series, it's like unleash the unleash the beasts is never as cool as they think it is, um, and never never has been. Uh, the lizards are kind of. I'll, I'll give a little shout out to the lizard men. Yeah, see, the thing they're, is, they're, they're I, I think they're unleash the beast is different though. I think that these. These design elements are interesting in Total War Warhammer where asymmetricality is a fundamental piece of the design, right? 
there's an assumption here that every faction is going to perform radically differently than every other faction, and you might not like them all. Whereas with a more historically focused game like Three Kingdoms, I at least one uh, more grounded in semi-historical myth or legend, we want to see a grounded basis for every faction that has at least the appearance of historicity. And I think that was what they tried to do with uh, Troy. And I'm not sure they entirely succeeded there either. Yeah, it's like my takeaway from Troy at the end of the year is just like, well, that sure is a thing that existed. Oh, see, I think (laughs) you're completely like, no, I came away at at the end of the year. I was like, yeah, Troy. Yeah, that was a game that I played for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's a game I played. And at the end of it, I was still unhappy that they didn't take it in a much more interesting direction by making it based on myth rather than pseudo history. Or like super historical. That was my my goal for it or desire. I mean, super. Yeah, I agree. Super historical would have been way more interesting than what we got, which was. I don't know that that's I. I don't know that super historical would have been, but. I I mean, bronze bronze age strategy game. You're going to be you're going to be. Here's the thing. (laughs) If they had made it about the bronze age collapse and had made it like similar to Attila, where you have the tension between these established Bronze Age empires and these, you know, economic factors and possibly environmental factors. And then you have these hordes running around that are like sea people that are going to set up new kingdoms. I could see that being really interesting, or I could see the mythology angle being really interesting. Either of those, I think, would have been better than sort of this, uh, you know, semi-Hollywoodized, we're just going to go based on Homer and try to like split the difference. Yeah, Liana's referring to the the way that I wanted it, which was not just like this particular setting, but like an entire full Eastern Mediterranean with the Hittites and the Assyrians right, right, right. and sure. the Egyptians. Proper Minoans. Uh, yes. Um, I would also note that uh, we are planning a Warhammer show. We're planning on going back to Total yeah. Warhammer 2 and revisiting, so we're not getting in too much detail on right. their yeah. stuff. But I like I, I will disagree, and I say, it, it, when all is said and done, I actually like quite a bit of what was in Troy. Um, I liked the alliance uh, dynamics that exist in the early phase. Like For me, that is, a good, that is a good example of like a phase A of the game and then a phase B. Uh, where you're waging the wider war. Uh, that worked well. I think Agents Remain a Disaster. Um, the amount of mm-hmm. admin overhead to play that game is unpleasant. And I, I think it points to a, a problem that Total War still has, which is the things that agents do, the effects they can have are interesting. There are a lot of interesting effects you can sort of put into a Total War game. There are not a lot of great ways to achieve effects, and agents are a solution that game that series keeps coming back to to be like, well, you know, this this unit can be the thing that does all these things, and it just sucks. It just sucks every time because either it's not not all the effects will be created equal, and so 
some of them you'll just basically be spamming. Like you will always want this bonus. You'll always want this buff in place. Or because these units have this ability to release these powerful uh, buffs or debuffs, you always have to have the capacity to defend yours and attack the enemies. And so you get back into the position of like agents walking in a big circle trying to kill each other uh, constantly. And that's also not fun. Uh, so there's a lot that's old in Troy that I wish weren't there, even if I get why, why it is. Uh, but I did like the different factions. They did feel different to me. I've liked the, uh, the rework of the economy. Um, yeah, I think there's, I think there's a lot of things that work well in Troy. It's just overall, the game is also very clunky and a lot of the ways it works are enabled because it, because it is clunky. Um, I've also got a, we're running a bit late here and I've got a dog that's uh, starting to get very uh, hungry. So I'm on the, I'm on Mina time now. Um, But (laughs) okay. So let's just, let's just wrap this up quickly. Congratulations to Iron Harvest. uh, RTS of the year. (laughs) Crushed it. Um, Just, just nailed it. Uh, Competition was fierce. Um, Age of Empires 3 came out. God, it was boring. Oh, I couldn't. I just couldn't. I was like, I've always heard Age of Empires 3 gets a bad rap. I don't know if that's true. I played it and I was like, I hate this. I hate no, it. It's, better it, than I rem- it's better than I remembered. It's still not great. Yeah. It's a very specific game design in its own ways. And, yeah. you know, the designers themselves talked about it as a as a failed experiment. So yeah. what are you going to do? But Iron Harvest, though. Iron Harvest. Love that single player campaign. Love Give that single that- player campaign DLC. Every yeah. other game I, that came out that was an RTS this year, kind of pants. Are, are you are you guys big ironic? No. Okay. Wait, what? What do you mean? I, it sounded like you're being ironic. No, this is genuine enthusiasm. I love Iron Harvest. Uh, okay. Like, yes, we are being ironic about the fact that there's nothing really credible. You know what I mean? There's no other. There's no competition. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that was the vector of irony, not that Iron Harvest just wins by no, default. That came, no, Iron Harvest legitimately rules. Um, okay. That is a campaign that is worth playing and is, in fact, even more endearing because of the rough edges it has. But Agreed. overall, like it's it's cool as hell and uh, it mixes up the missions well. And man, some like. A thing you need from a single player RTS is also like when you've got that big skirmish battle that's going to be like clear this map of enemies. It's going to be a bloodbath. That's got to be a satisfying bloodbath and it's got to be like lots of friction and grinding attrition. Iron Harvest brings that energy like Iron Harvest has those missions where it's like, oh, shit, this is just World War One now. This is just World War One with Max where it's like just blowing the fuck out of fortification lines, advancing, but getting so depleted in the assault that you get rolled up and everyone returns to status quo. That rules. I love it. Oh. Yeah, that I I have fond memories of some Total Annihilation games like that. So, uh, yeah, you know, that's actually very apt. Yes. Total Annihilation was kind of uh, World War One with uh, with Max as well. Um, yeah, I think we I, I think I, we can leave it there, right? I I'd li- I just want to shout out a couple expansions. Unity of Command and Planetfall both got some interesting little expansions where good games just keep on chugging along being good. Go team. That's yeah. true. Awesome. Uh, 
everyone should everyone should keep chugging along and making good expansions. That's uh, that. Or go into a completely different direction and kick our asses with stuff we totally don't expect. We we like that too. Sure, we're we're open to anything uh, here in 2021, even even good shipbuilding. <laughs> we know that's a myth. <laughs> anyway, that'll do it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. This episode was produced by Liana Hafer. Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. Uh, you can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. That also has further information about our super secret Discord server and our special podcasts uh, where we occasionally talk about strategy games, but not just strategy games, sometimes books as well. Uh, so so give it a look give it a listen uh, and, and see if there's anything there you like anyway we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead until then for Len for Rowan for John this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight I however much yeah. prefer a game where I spend 75 hours before I realize <laughs> that we don't have enough heating fuel to survive this winter and we'll have to go deeply in debt to the Western powers to well, get it. So what we choose you death was your over own that. understanding. What? <laughs> Just tell them to chop some firewood, bunch of whiners. Like, there's no, there's no firewood on the step, man. That's the issue. He built well, the city. The city doesn't have a natural. They deforested years ago. It's just there because of the, <laughs> the rich mineral supplies. I don't know. Rub your hands together really fast. Stop whining. <laughs> Get on the buses. There's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. The buses have heating. The buses are warm. We'll just add some extra bus routes. We're just gonna bus everybody around we're, in we're circles. Living. It's like it's like Snowpiercer, <laughs> but it's a it's a daisy chain of municipal buses. Oh, <laughs> wandering around a desolate Soviet city. <laughs> oh, because we couldn't yeah, we couldn't figure out a way to allocate that fuel from the buses to like a power plant or something. We would have needed to have known about that like three years ago, so yeah, this is just our solution, our central planning solution now. <laughs>